that you would rip apart that veil that covers our hearts, like you did in the temple when you were crucified. That giant, thick, four-inch thick veil just ripped in half so we can enter into the Holy of Holies, that we don't have to do anything special other than just receive you, repent and place our faith in you, and that's it. So we thank you. So we ask this morning that if there is something covering our hearts as individuals or as a church as a whole, you would rip it apart and we would enter your Holy of Holies and hear your word to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the show, uh, Gilmore Girls, <laughs> uh, roommates Rory and Paris. Rory, that's a hard name to say, isn't it? It's kind of a strange name. Rory, uh, it's like drawer, like close their drawer. You know, it's kind of weird. Anyway, but they share a secret, and uh, Rory is supposed to keep that secret, but she, Paris learns that she's told somebody, and they've told somebody else, and uh, by that, Paris is deeply hurt. Often we don't realize the damage um, and pain a thoughtless comment or word can create in somebody, right? But God understands the importance of our words, doesn't he? And uh, Proverbs has some wise words on how we use our words, right? So Proverbs 4, 20 through 27 says this. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ears to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to, to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and to be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Do me a favor. As you're having your quiet times, little side note, Jim. Uh, just think about what if these words weren't written. I've said that the last few weeks. Just uh, these lines. Who, like some of these lines, you, if you, like would you have ever written them? Would they have come out of your mouth? It, this is the word of the Lord, right? You know, so while imparting wisdom to his son, I keep getting texts. Uh, to his son, the author of Proverbs addresses the words that we use Stating in verse 24, keep your mouth free from perversity, keep corrupt talk far from your lips. So that means that, you know, words which are untrue, which are deceptive, uh, which lead people astray, need to be so far removed from us that we have nothing to do with them, right? He doesn't just say, don't do this, don't say this, but rather be so far removed from this kind of speech that people can't even associate you with it. Our words are powerful for both good and for evil, aren't they? Words can hurt. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can deeply wound and even kill. Proverbs 12:18 adds this. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Isn't that cool? Think about those times when you've been on the receiving end of a reckless word from somebody else, right? Sometimes you've even felt that physically, like a punch in the gut, right? A wound which can last for days or weeks or months or even years. 
Almost everybody in this room, and I would venture to say everybody in this room, has some instance that they can recall in which someone has said something cutting and hurtful, which we carry with us throughout our lives, affecting almost everything that we do underneath the surface, right? Indulge me a moment while I go off a bit on a tangential point, but I think it is a relevant point. I want, to, I want us to see how amazingly practical, obviously practical, are the scriptures to human relationships and interactions, right? The gospel applies itself to everyday life and the interactions between souls in order for us to be salt and light to this world around us. It doesn't just concern itself with eternal salvation in the future beyond the grave, right? Rather, it attaches itself to all the little minute details of heart and human interaction, doesn't it? Before the word of God to be applied, it must be searched intentionally with a great passion. Allowing it to till up the weeds, right? And in order to plant something new, something life-giving in our hearts, which reveals itself mostly in our interactions, in our relationships with others. Kim and I were having a discussion the other day, driving back from Harrisburg, which uh, she observed that the American church has largely lowered gospel standards. They really have, across the board, generically, right? That when people really wouldn't answer the call of Christ as defined in terms of having to repent of sin, to die to ourselves, to be reborn in Christ, then a pursuit, you know, going into a pursuit of holiness under the lordship and the authority and the direction of Jesus, when, when that was sort of rejected, that sort of, you know, serious commitment was rejected, then the standards were just lowered instead, right? Because Christ doesn't just say to us, I'm going to give my life for you. He demands yours in return, doesn't he? He really does. And so as a result, we've preached Jesus as Savior only for far too long and not Lord at all. I hope I haven't done that. But now it's simply Jesus loves you with no real tangible effect, no directives, no authority over a person's life, love being defined as total acceptance without ex, you know, expectation of sort of transformation, and especially without permission to confront errant thought or behavior in a person's life. Lowering standards to draw people into the doors, to pay for our shows and our salaries and our bills, to make us feel better. And church has been defined as successful if it was growing, right? And not that it stayed pure to the gospel. If your church wasn't growing, it was blamed on bad leadership, or worse, people would whisper to each other, the Spirit of the Lord is just not there. Con congregants were never at fault, because you can't blame the, the customer, the consumer, right? You can't blame them. Mega churches rose to the top. Not that mega churches are bad, I'm not saying that. Voices of prosperity filled the airwaves. All kinds of sin lay just below the surface in this model since there was no real desire or effort to pursue holiness in our lives. No need. No need to pursue it. 
because we were saved by a parent who would allow us to do whatever we wanted. And that sin eventually comes to the surface, doesn't it? And it sullies the name of Christ out there in the, the world and the internet and everywhere else. And we create our own monsters through our disobedience. And church leaders become frustrated when they're castrated of any directive authority and they fall into sin themselves, which eventually comes out. Difficult topics and whole passages of Scripture were and still are avoided from the pulpit at all costs given the inevitable angry exodus of the nominal from a congregation if they are addressed. Those who would walk out the door and say, you're not the judge of me. You can't judge me. And by our definitions of success, then we are failures since we would have not have a large church any longer and our church would not be growing. People would be leaving. Although Matthew Henry once wrote, the way to preserve the peace of the church is to preserve the purity of it. But with low standards and little understanding of the application of God's word in this life, there's no unity on issues in the larger American church anymore. And therefore, no openness to church discipline or the importance of it, what it does for us. But a church without discipline can hardly count as a church, it's been said. And when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. The truth is, if we can't say what something is not, then we very well can't say what it is, right? D.A. Carson once said, there are three uh, things that necessitate church discipline, major moral issues, major doctrinal issues, and major lawlessness characterized by divisiveness. And I would venture to say that all three of those points involve our speech, because sin is birthed through wrong desire within us, you know, in thought, and then it is carried out in word and then eventually into behavior. James Denny wrote, the judgment of the church is the instrument of God's love. And the moment it is accepted in the sinful soul, it begins to work a redemptive force. If we cannot speak into each other's behavior, in, into our own words, or even our own thinking, we're not being the church. And the question then is, are we open to correction ourselves in the pursuit of individual and corporate holiness and purity? Do we think none of our Christian brothers and sisters has any right to speak into our words, into our behaviors, into our thoughts? The words we speak can encourage or discourage, cut deeply or bring healing, right? The Bible recognizes that a wise person is careful with the words that they use. Speech is a big responsibility. And this is one area where God speaks to us quite often. And he directs us in his word. Ephesians 4.29, for instance, says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. We don't pay heed to such directives. We sort of drift away, right? Like a boat unmoored on a 
placid lake. You know, we don't realize that there is an undercurrent taking it away a little bit at a time. You turn your back on it for an hour and suddenly it's in the middle of the lake. Most of us don't begin our walks wanting to be a nominal Christian, right? Just sort of a like saved in the future kind of a Christian. But we drift away ever so slightly with every little compromise that we make, don't we? And I say all that to say, don't disregard God's wisdom that we are hearing in the book of Proverbs or anywhere else in Scripture for that matter. Fight being nominal. Dive deep into the waters of God's word. And let me just add to this that my wife and I take a walk every day and we pray together. This has been our new routine that we pray on our walks around Haverford College usually or some place in the neighborhood. And our greatest prayer right now, our greatest prayer that keeps coming up is that the Lord would increase our personal desire for him and that that would overflow into you, our church. That, that our church would be a place that is just thirsty and hungry for Jesus. And you led us well this morning in that. Just that that would be a rising welling up in us. So just know that you're being prayed for that way. So pay attention to your words, because what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of our hearts. That's what it says, right? We're in the process of being sanctified, being transformed into the character of Christ. At least we're supposed to be. <laughs> we don't earn our salvation by how well we do any of this stuff. So I'm not sitting here preaching to make you feel guilty. The answer is not to try harder. The answer is to focus on Jesus, right? But remember, God is not against our effort in these, th these areas. We can't earn our salvation, but we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We can't lose that, right? Which we can use that freedom to be more and more like Jesus, which, which very much involves our speech, knowing that we're going to make mistakes along the way. As my police officer friend I told you about a few weeks ago, informed me um, the more disconnected we are in society, the meaner and angrier society becomes. Hence, police officers get shot and other people get shot. With a false sense of sort of disconnectedness or anonymity in our society, we send to, tend to say things that we would never say in polite company. And social media is a breeding ground for such hateful speech, isn't it? Just download the next door app, the next door neighbor app. You know, I've got that. Ooh, it's entertaining, to say the least. And just w watch all the hurtful jabs thrown around concerning local politics and policies. There was one on there this morning about somebody wanting to give, give away their cats. Somebody even criticized them for that. Why would you ever move someplace to, where you couldn't bring your cats? They're a part of your family for life. You know, like, arr, arr, arr. it's like, I was just trying to give away the cats, right? <laughs> employers routinely scour media posts right before hiring a person because they are revealing our potential candidates sort of unloading on others in a in an angry diatribe every day are they vitriolic and caustic in their communications are they careless and inappropriate with their words i've not hired people because i got to know them and then i looked at their Facebook page. I'm like, whoa, not bringing that here, not bringing that here. 
even if an employer agrees with your side of the argument, they may not hire you given that they don't want to invite that kind of an atmosphere into their workplace. So the question is, is a professed Christian, somebody that really is truly pursuing the Lord, wants to pursue the Lord, are they being Christ in all of their communications? Not easy, by the way. This is not easy. It does take a lot of mistakes. We, we have to notice how right we can be in our arguments, how correct, how textbook correct we can be, but how wrong we can be in our delivery, right? That no one will listen to us until they know that we love them. It's not that we should go silent on issues, I'm not saying that, but that we should actually become sort of emboldened to speak truth in love due to our position in Christ and our calling to be salt and light, bringing the message of the gospel to a dying world. So how do I do that well? They may not like the content of what you said, but they should never be able to point to how you said it or the demeanor with which you did, right? So look through your social media posts. Do they reflect truth and respect, fairness? Do they reflect Christ? How have you responded when somebody else has criticized you? Have you, been, have you responded with listening and sort of prayer and internal wrestling? Or do you just get, you know, sort of defensive? Is there anybody you need to apologize for your social media sort of behavior or, you know, other interactions? See, we, we would do well to think on these things. My wife was reminding me, she's, she was, she's been reading a lot of spiritual formation stuff, and she was saying, you know, an athlete does not get to where they are without a lot of training. And, and how much training do we put into our godliness, right? How much time and effort? I, you know, how many miles have I run through the scriptures, right? How much time have I spent on my knees praying to get closer to Jesus, right? So we would do well to think on these things, allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us in this area to bring about a greater holiness and, in life and in our speech. A Bulgarian umbrella, if you don't know it, is an umbrella with a little hidden pneumatic device in it that injects a small poisonous pellet rice, with ricin on it. I think the pellet is so small, it's even hard to see, right? Such an umbrella was used to, to, uh, in the assassination of uh, Bulgarian dissident writer Georgi Markov, if I say his name correctly, on Waterloo Bridge in London, September 7th, 1978. And that coincidentally was the birthday of the Bulgarian State Council chairman who had been often been the target of Markov's criticism. Markov died four days later because of that poisoning. And the assassination was believed to be in, have been carried out by the Bulgarian secret police in, in cahoots with the KGB at the time. A tiny pellet, right? Just a tiny pellet, so small, injected into the leg of this man, killed him in four days. That's amazing. The Apostle James, right, you remember this, picks up this proverbial thought of small things having great negative impact or a great poison to kill, right? In James chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he speaks of taming the tongue because of the power it holds. He uses a number of illustrations from the bridle of a 
a horse to the rudder of a ship and to show how something so small has the, the power to direct something so large and so powerful. It says it this way, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's me, by the way. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check, which we know that we're not, right? When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by a strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Amen to that, right? Isn't that true? It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise the Lord and Father, and with, with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's image or God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. One can't reside with the other. Praise and cursing can't walk in hand in hand. They're not twin sisters, right? The words we speak can shape our life and the lives of others around us, and we need to be careful with the pain and the healing that they can bring. And remember, once a reputation is set, once people see you a certain way, it's hard to change that. Many of us just move, move states. So how do we want people to regard us, especially as we bear the name of Christ? Especially because we bear the name of Christ. Jesus took this further, telling us that one day we will be judged for every careless word we speak. Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account for the day, on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That's, a, that's kind of frightening. You may be able to deny what you said now, and you may be able to delete an account or a tweet or something like that now, but God has seen these things. He knows these things, and he will one day bring us to account for it. I don't know what that looks like, but I don't want it to happen. Right? In 2020, a family gathered in California. We've all heard these stories, right? And they were hosting a gender reveal party for an expectant mom. And, and uh, as a result of that party and the little explosion, um, a fire started. And the El Dorado fire ended up burning over 20,000 acres and killing a firefighter. James wrote, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. Now, that fire may not have been set by a literal word, but it was set by a word expressed in an action, right? And it should be a real and painful reminder to us how careful we need to be with our words. We don't understand how far-reaching are our hurtful words. Social media is such a common area in which too many Christians forget about the biblical prerogative to be careful with our speech. 
it's easy for us to dash off some hasty sort of ill-advised diatribe, you know, and to demonize other human beings or to share something as fact without checking that it's actually true. Once a rumor or bullying or falsehoods, you know, get rolling on social media or, or just between people and gossip, it is just about impossible to stop. It's like a juggernaut just picking up speed, killing anything in its path. Years ago, a young couple started asking me strange questions. Felt like they were digging for something that wasn't there. And I was kind of confused, but they wouldn't, really wouldn't explain why they were asking these questions. Suddenly, within one week, they exploded, and they just left the church in a huff. And no explanation, no reason whatsoever. I had no idea what happened. Suddenly, another co a couple approached me, and they started, you know, uh, challenging me on this obscure biblical passage. And, and they said that they only read their Bible in a certain translation because that was the closest to the original. And, and, and that, that they were challenging me on this, and... They, you know, so I went back to the Greek. I said, okay, I'll do you one better. I'll go back to the Greek, and I'll look at it, because maybe you're right, and I need to learn something here. So I went back to the Greek, the original language, and I pointed out to them, it doesn't say what you think it says. And, you know, I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was trying to be pastoral. Like, let's, let's look at this. You're errant in your understanding of this passage. And in the middle of that conversation, I realized the similarity with what this couple was saying to me with what the other couple was asking before they left the church. So I asked them, have you been talking to so-and-so? And they said, yeah, we have. Turns out they had been gossiping for weeks about this obscure thing that they were wrong in. And I challenged them on it, right? But they were unwilling to listen, and then they also left. So a few words, just a few words, led two couples to leave our church on false pretenses. How often that happens. And who knows how far that, that goes, how many more people they're telling about that, right? I'm not worried about our reputation. That doesn't scare me at all. Jesus is king of this church, not Jason, right? But in the pastorate, I have become cautious when I hear someone show up and explain their past church trauma from another place, I do listen, and I do realize, could be that they really got eaten up at another church unfairly and wrongly. Could be. But oftentimes I find out later that they were actually the problem, that they were just confronted in their former church by that leadership. But they were unwilling to listen, so they left, and they passed blame, and they besmirched that former church and its leadership. That shouldn't be happening in Christian churches. But forgive and forget, because it does happen, and it will continue to happen, because we're humans. But it doesn't stop us from striving higher, does it? Not at all. Too often we think of our freedom from censorship and our, we declare our right to free speech, but we forget our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus. We can carefully consider if our words spoken online or otherwise are truthful, are fair, are respectful, are loving. And when we mess up, we can apologize. We can certainly apologize. 
And when somebody calls us on our speech, instead of being defensive, we can take the time to consider what they have said and whether God wants to teach us something through that, that correction. Because correction is good. Correction is really good for us. A loving father corrects his children just as the scriptures say that God does for us. And he often uses, for the most part, he uses the church to correct people, right? To correct each other. Other believers correcting each other all the time. Now, we can't judge hearts. I'm not going to be able to judge your heart and say, you know, whether you're saved or not and all that kind of stuff. That's not the point. But we can, and it is healthy, to judge behaviors and words when they are errant from the directors of Christ, when they deviate from Scripture. A church without discipline is not a church at all, right? Three things necessitate church discipline, major moral issues, major doctrinal issues, and major lawlessness characterized by divisiveness. And the way to preserve the peace of the church is to preserve the purity of the church. The judgment of the church is an instrument of God's love, and the moment that is accepted into the heart of that believer, into that sinful soul, it begins to work a redemptive force, a life-giving force, right? So watch your tongue, right? Because it has the potential to burn down a forest of relationships. It has the potential through that to sully the name of Christ. It has the, the, the potential through that to divert your devotion from your holiness in Christ and your witness in Christ. Ungodly speech can be seen in our lying, exaggerating, saying yes when you mean no. We've been going through this with our foster kids lately, just these constant conversations about say, if, you, if you mean no, don't say yes. You know, don't lie, right? Being silent when we should speak, not following through on our promises that we've made, which is big in our culture right now, right? Being uh, mean or unkind, manipulating others, complaining, gossiping, being critical or disrespectful, and also just the plain old impure, vulgar, sort of coarse joking. It's not becoming, right? Which one of those that you, do you need to work on, right? How, does they, how do, that, do they reflect your true heart? And why? Do we feel the need to do them? That's the real question underneath it. In Hebrews, the writer talks about children of God versus acting as spiritual orphans, right? And that was taken up in the sonship course, if you remember. But you are children of God. You are secure in Jesus. You have been adopted, grafted into the family of God. You can't have that taken away. Not even you can take that away from you, right? Is by grace through faith alone in Christ. But we often act as spiritual orphans, don't we? See, an orphan is rebellious and resists authority and has a hard heart, and they, they, are, they are not easily teachable people. But a child of God has strength to be submissive, and saw, they have a soft and broken and contrite heart, and they are teachable people. An orphan is defensive and can't listen well, and they bristle at the charge of being self-righteous. But a child of God is open to criticism. They stand on Christ's perfection, 
and they are able to examine their unbelief. An orphan needs to be right. They need to be safe, secure. They are unwilling to fail, and they, they won't tolerate criticism, and they can only handle praise. A child is able to take risks and fail since their righteousness is not in themselves but in Christ, and they need no record to boast in or to protect or defend this in this world. An orphan tends to be ungrateful and complains and is bitter and has a critical spirit and tears other people down. A child relies on the Holy Spirit to guide the tongue. They praise, they edify, they give thanks, and they encourage people. An orphan gossips. They need to criticize others. They feel right. They often claim they have the gift of discernment. You've heard people that are really critical say, well, I have the gift of discernment. A child is able to confess their own faults, finds out when they, when, when they are themselves wrong, and they're eager to, eager to sort of grow through that, right? An orphan boasts of themselves, but a child of God boasts in Jesus and reveals their own weaknesses as they do so. I watched the uh, chapel service that started this revival at Asbury, and the talk was good. It wasn't earth-shattering. It wasn't like, wow, oh my gosh, I can see why that happened, why that started. It was just a nice talk about the lo- you know, loving others. But one thing I did notice is the guy was very open about his own weaknesses. And he was very, laid that down. It was a very godly talk in a sense, you know. So spend the next week noticing how you speak and interact with others, how you treat them with your words. Try not to do these things. Try not to gossip, to complain, to criticize, to blame shift, to make excuses or defend yourself or boast or deceive anybody. That's hard. Just take a picture of that. Is that up there? Yeah. Take a picture of that and try not to do that this week, any of those things. That's a hard one, right? But I think if you do it, I'm sure God will meet you in that exercise. If you are prayerful and you are honest with him, he will joyously convict you where you need to be convicted, and he will encourage you where you need to be encouraged. Let me pray for us. Uh, 